Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Thriving Adoptees podcast. So today I'm delighted to be joined by Laura, Laura L. Engel. Really looking forward to our conversation today, Laura. Thank you. I am too. Yeah. Um, there's something magic about speaking with birth mums for me. No. Um, and I don't, I'm getting goosebumps just down that, you know, it's... Uh, it's a, a sense of uh, t- togetherness. I don't know quite what happens. Anyway, it's it's a, it's a lovely mystery. So um, before we started uh, recording, you said that writing your 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 your, your memoir, your your book, um, it felt like you getting a boulder off your back. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and it's hard to explain. But for 50 years, I carried such grief and shame over leaving my son at an unwed mother's home that it affected me in ways I wasn't even aware of. For instance, my um, I didn't even write about it in my journals, and I've always written in my journals and diaries. Oh, you didn't couldn't even write to it about it to yourself. No, no, wow. because and this is going to sound so crazy now. But um, with my other children, they didn't know about my son that I had given up. And they, um, I was always worried, what if they find my journal and read it? And I have all this information in there. And they're like, what, what, what is mom talking about? You know, that kind of thing, which is so silly now when I think about it, because I don't think my kids would ever read my journals. <laughs> you know, I, I really wonder if they would. But um, it's like... Once I started writing about it, it was crazy. It was about six months before my son and I reunited. I had come to the conclusion that I would probably never meet him because 50 years had gone by and I had searched, but I never got an inkling that he was looking for me. So I would write about, you know, things about New Orleans in my journals, but I would put a, I put N-O, which was a, um, that was the unwed mother's home was in New Orleans. So that was my little code to myself that I was writing. Like I would say something like, for instance, I'm thinking about N-O today and, and you know, da, 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 da. so finally I, I got the courage on my own writing in my journal to just start writing, you know, about what happened and the truth. And the more I wrote, the better I felt. It was almost like, like I told you, it was almost like something like a stone or a boulder was lifted off my shoulders that I could freely write about it. I never talked to a therapist about it. And I've gone to therapy for other things during my life, you know, but like a divorce thing and, you know, that kind of thing. But I'd never really specifically gone to therapy for what had happened to me as a 17 year old girl and about my fear and worry about my son like what happened to him? Where is he? Because in a closed adoption, as you know, you know nothing. And so the unknown is pretty terrifying, really. And once I started writing, I became more at peace with the whole thing, never dreaming I would write a book about it at that time. And I'm a true believer in manifestation because many times when I've written about things or my you know, what my goals are or what I want in life. 
a lot of times it'll happen. It's almost like magic. It'll just, um, it'll happen. It'll manifest. Yeah. And so never dreaming about doing that with my son, but I started writing, um, find Jamie at the type. That's what I named my son. So I started fi writing find Jamie at the top of each page of my journal. And that went on for six months because I really, in my heart, wanted to find him, but I honestly didn't know what would happen afterward. What happened was, as you know, the universe doesn't always pan out the way we plan it to. They have surprises. It has surprises for us. And the surprise was my son found me, even though I was writing, find Jamie, find Jamie. But I think the step that made it start the whole step of starting to reunite and find each other was my writing about it finally and opening myself up to the possibility that this would happen, this could happen. And six months later it did. Yeah. And I didn't even think about all this until after the fact, when I started going through the synchronicities of all the things that added up to finding each other. So I want, I want to take you back to the, top there because there's quite a lot to dig through um and i'm not sure if i mentioned this on another podcast recently or maybe when it was just in one of my other conversations um somebody shared this with me uh the difference between shame and guilt because you mentioned shame and shame and guilt mm -hmm. and um it was uh, apparently brene brown has made a different has, has made a nice distinction between the two um so Shame is about um, uh, who we are, and guilt is about what we've done. Mm -hmm. and so there's a there's a big there's a big distinction there. That's there is by, you're right by who we are and, and, and what we do. So how would that? How would you see that um, distinction? I, I completely agree with that because in my mind no matter what was happening in my life in those 50 years, there was always that, um, the shame was when we were girls in the unwed mother's home and not only in the unwed mother's home, all the whole society was that if we ended up pregnant and unmarried, you know, shame on us, what had we done? We were terrible girls to have done that. And we bought into it, um, at least, just about everyone I ever talked to bought into it that was in that situation. We were made to feel like we had done something that was so deplorable and they were going to fix it for us by, um, you know, have almost forced, well, pretty much forcing us to, to relinquish our baby. And that was, we were told that was the only way that we could show how much we love this child because we couldn't, take care of a child alone. We're talking the 1960s. Um, it was hard to be a single mother. It still is today, but it was uh, for a teenage girl like me, there was no other choice in, in their opinions. And when I say they, I mean society, family, our minister, um, school, everywhere. You know, you were kicked out of school immediately if you were pregnant. There was no way you were going to get continue to go to school in 1960s. And the, the sh that was the shame of it. You were made to feel like you had done 
a terrible thing. The second part, um, the guilt, was in my mind, I always felt like I should have done more. I should have fought for my child. I should have demanded. But I was not who I am today when I was 17 years old. And um, I didn't know how to demand it. The, the, the way I tried to, it's in the book, my attempts to, to change my parents' mind didn't go anywhere. And I felt like I had no backup behind me. So it feels like they kind of really ganged up on you. Yeah, but that was typical back then. It was, um, I've had a lot of adoptees talk to me and I love talking to adoptees the way you said you love talking to birth mothers. There is a magical thread. There is some type of connection with all adoptees I talk to. And um, I, I feel like almost every one of them ask me the same question, eventually, if they don't ask it right at first. Is it true that you thought of your son every day? Because I always say that, and I wrote that in my book, because I did. And I say, yes, it's very true. Now, how could I not think about him, worry about him, wonder where he was? So... Yes, definitely. I did think about him every day. And I feel like in a way that gives them some kind of understanding of a, of a typical birth mother, I do not think in the 1960s wanted to do what she was made to do. Hmm. I, I never met one that was like, yay, this is, you know, easy. It's not, it wasn't. It was but, horrible. But there was kind of like, um you 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 were facing um you were facing them all alone though yes you were very much alone you were facing them more alone and the 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 mind is so you had you had no choice you had no cho choice you had no chance you were both you, you had no choice and you had no chance it, it, it was like but the mind doesn't let let us off the hook like that, does it? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. And, and you know, writing was so therapeutic for me because once I did start, like, like just letting it out on the page, you know, there's some kind of um, connection, and I'm sure there's a much better way of saying this, but when you put a pen to paper and you write what's going on in your life or your feelings or what's in your heart and soul, it is so therapeutic. It's like it takes the writing is straight from your heart, your brain to your pen. And there's some kind of magical thing that happens. It's a very therapeutic thing, whether you're writing a list of what I'm grateful for or whether you're writing this happened to me or a letter that you're going to destroy later, you know, which happens too. There was just something therapeutic and it helped to relieve a lot of that uh, guilt that I had. Because for once I began to realize who I had been, not, I wasn't me now. That was a girl. That was a, a younger version of me in a totally different chapter of my life. And I didn't have a choice. I, I had very little um, support. And I think that uh, it made me a stronger person that probably than I ever would have been if I hadn't had that happen. It also made me um, 
very non-judgmental as far as realizing, okay, I know I'm a good person and I'm being treated like I'm not. And how many other people does this happen to that I don't know the full story? So from then on, I really have felt very strongly about not judging others. I mean, you, you said there was no support or very little support. Well, it, it was, compl- I, I, as I, as you've explained it to me ahead of time, there was, it was exactly the opposite. It was, it was. <laughs> you, it, it, every it, turn. Was, whatever, what's the opposite of support? No support. I mean, every time oh. you turn around, every avenue, you know, you thought you would get, I, I, I was blocked. kind of, a, yeah, there blocked. was a, a a wall, a wall everywhere. There was never someone that said, come here, tell me what you want to do. Tell me what you think you can do. Um, tell me how I can help you. It was like nobody in the 1960s, parents didn't even ask you how you felt because, you know, it was like, whatever. And it was a totally different kind of uh, generational type of conversation with parents and children than there is now. Um we we pretty much did what they told us to do. And, and when you were 17 in 1967 or 66, I guess is when I was 17 and turned 17, you were not the 17 year old that we know today, you know, or even in my children's generation, in your generation, it was um, because you are, you would be like my, you know, son, you're so close in age and everything. Yeah. I think you're like same age. Yeah. And um, it was a different world. We did what they told us to do. But the more I wrote about it and the more I thought about it and forced myself to remember those painful rem- memories, I realized from the, first of all, my parents, they didn't know what to do. They they were horrified. They thought, you know, I had, you know, what had I done to the family reputation and to myself, you know, I had destroyed myself. My boyfriend who had wanted nothing to do with me, my, um, his family, they wanted him, he preferred joining the army to marrying me and Vietnam was going on. And then there, that made me feel, you know, like dirt. And then you had, you know, the schools, you know, you can't go to school once they find out and you can't tell your friends because what are they going to think of you? Good girls don't do this. Right. And, um, it just, there was no, there was never people you could talk to. And once you got to the home, you could talk to the other girls. But I don't remember us ever really, I don't remember us having deep, deep conversations, to be honest. It was very uh, surface type things. It was a painful time. Yeah. I mean, the, the, we, we touched briefly on it. You touched briefly on it, and I kind of brushed it over, but I want to draw, go back to it, the fact that you... You were suppressing this stuff so hard, you couldn't even write about it in your own diary, your diary to yourself. I mean, that's like, that's it, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's like, I always, it's incredible, isn't it? I mean, how I do, powerful. I look at it now and I think, what in the world were you thinking? Um, people don't come in and into your, you know, private space and open your journal and start reading it. But I had this, I was so, I kept it such a secret. 
And, and I think I told you this before, Simon, the only thing I had to prove that I had my son was the little birth card that's on the cover of my book. That's the original birth card. And I stole it from his bassinet and carried it with me for 50 years in a little box. I still have it in the drawer here in my desk. Um, I kept it in a little box and I, I used it when I, like his birthdays, I would hold it to my heart. And I remember this happened every year on holidays and birthdays. I would secret myself away. This is how ashamed I was. I felt people would think so less of me if they knew that I had done this. I knew other people had given up children for adoption. I knew that um, this was something that was not like, I wasn't the only one in the world, but I was so protective of that secret. And I know it had to have damaged me in many ways because once I released it, wrote about it, talked about it, I can't tell you the relief I felt because all these years I've been thinking people would think less of me. And when I would talk to them at first about my son, I would, when we first re reunited, and I started my conversation off with this with my own children that I'd had later. I said, don't think less of me, please. So that's what my mindset was. And I'm thinking the only way it could have been that way is if I it had been pounded in me to never talk about this, which it was. That's another thing. You couldn't talk about it. Um, once you left the home, there was no one to talk to because no one wanted to talk about it. And the few people that knew in my life shut me down the minute I'd start talking about my son or how I wanted to go back or I wanted him back because I went through a period of that as well for the first three weeks being home. And I talk about that too. It, it was like, they expected me to go on with my life. Like, you know, everything was great, but everything wasn't great. I was changed. I was a mother yeah. without my son. Were you ashamed of your? Uh, were you ashamed of your shame? Yes, <laughs> I was. I was. Um, my husband knew because I had told him before we got married. My second husband, um, well, my first husband knew too. That's a whole other story. But my husband that I've been married to for forty-two years, he had would always say to me, "We met on a soccer field, and we, you know, he has two children, and I had three boys. He had a boy and a girl, and." we would do things together as, you know, friends. And then we, be, you know, fell in love and he would say, you're such a good mom. You're such a good mom. And one day I just said, I need to tell you something. I'm, I did something that you don't know about. I don't know how you're going to feel about me after I tell you. And when I told him, I expected him to be like my first husband and be like, don't ever talk about this. This is terrible. You know, and just, he just went crazy. The first husband demanding that I keep it a secret. Well, then my second husband, years later, my second husband, when I told him I expected a similar reaction, the reaction was just the opposite. He put his arms around me and said, I am so sorry you had to go through that. Do you want me to help you find him? And I thought, my God, this man is wonderful. <laughs> you know, if anything ever sealed the deal, that was it. Because for me, that was my darkest time. And um, and he reacted 
so caring and 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 didn't think less of me. So I, I think a lot of us birth mothers, and I think I told you this too one time in our conversation, so many of them um, still feel that way, that they can't talk about it. And I know that for a fact because I connected with a few of the um, the mothers from the home. And we're talking over 50 years later, 55 years later, and they still cannot talk about it. And they still have not told people in their family or their friends. And it, 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 it really angers me to think that this whole, you know, hundreds of thousands of women were treated that way. And so many men were not, you know, it was like the fathers, I don't, nobody even mentions the fathers. It's like, what happened to those men? What were they thinking? Were they in pain? Did they feel guilty? Um, so sometimes when I was writing, I would get angry and I would, I would think, how dare them treat us like this? Because I used to say, when I first started writing my book, I'd say, I don't want to feel like a victim. I told my um, writing coach in a class, I go, I want my book to be, I don't want it to sound like a poor me, poor me, because it wasn't like, you know, I wasn't raped or, you know, it, it was a consensual thing. And I felt very, you know, very guilty about it, that that part of it was, it was true. It was. And um, so I think that that was so uplifting for me to realize that it wasn't it wasn't like I had done a, I knew that I hadn't done the wrong thing I did what everyone did I got caught but I had made, been made to suffer so I had to control myself I was getting angry in my writing and my writing coach said but you were a victim and there's nothing wrong with that and I said oh because I've always been afraid of looking like a victim because I didn't feel like I really was but I think when I think of the other women, I think they were treated badly. So why don't I just understand I was too? Yeah. It's very complicated. Yeah. Um, was there um, a, a moment when, do you remember the moment when you first started getting this to vow onto you? When I, when I first started what? When, when, when you first, presumably, do you, do you remember the first time you actually, um, plucked up the courage to write about it in the book, in your diary, sorry, in, in your diary. Oh, oh, yes, I do. And it happened in, um, I was in an artist way class. Do you know what that is? Artist. Of, the artist way. All right. Okay. It's uh, Julia Cameron wrote the book maybe 30 years ago. And I bought the book 30 years ago, but then I never, I didn't even open it, I don't think. And then when I retired, I said, I want to take an artist way class because this class is supposed to help you, you know, find your creativity and, um, you know, be brave enough to to do things that you've always thought, you know, I'm not good at that. I want to do it, but I'm not that good. Anyway, it's supposed to be a very intense, great class. And it was. But one of the things in the class is that Julia Cameron says, if there was anything you could do, if there's anything you could achieve and, and money was not an option, your family was not an option. I mean, it wasn't in the way. It was an obstacle. Money wasn't an obstacle. There was no, nothing, no obstacle. Okay, what would you do? 
And so you're supposed to write a list of like 10 things. Well, that's, it's hard to do, by the way. The first thing I wrote without even thinking, you know, hand, paper, you know, the pen, the heart, the head, I wrote, find Jamie. And I thought I'd finally come to the conclusion I probably would never meet him. So every day I started doing that in that class. And even writing those words the first time, one of my uh, close friends was in the class with me and she sat right next to me. And here's what I even thought to myself. I wonder if she's wondering who Jamie is. Because, it, you know, our, our notebooks were so close to each other, we could see if we really looked over there. And that's how I was. I mean, I'm, it's crazy now when I tell you, but it's the truth. And so about four months later, after this class, we were writing all the time, you know, our list in the class and, and stuff like that. And so one day I told her something I'd never told anyone in California, none of my friends. Uh, we were going for a walk after the class. And I said, uh, I have something to tell you. We sat down in this, we were in this very crowded, um, it's called um, Seaport Village in San Diego. And it's very tourist area and we were walking there just going for a walk so we sat down in this crowded area and it just spilled out of me my story about my son and she did exactly the opposite of what I thought she would do I thought she would be like oh my gosh you know how, how could you do that how could you how could you leave a, a baby because she and I always talk about is our kids and being mothers and grandmothers and she, she did just the opposite. She said, I am so sorry. I'll help you look for him. And I, I mean, she just was so gentle and kind about it. And it kind of made me realize what's wrong with me? Why am I thinking everyone is just going to be so, you know, like, ah, this is 1967. This is, you know, and this is time for you. This was 2016 when this was happening. So um, I remember when I first opened up writing about it and I first spoke the words out loud and I came home that day from the walk and I said to my husband, I, um, I told Jill and he said, you told Jill what? And I said, I told her about Jamie. And he said, wow. And I could see he was proud of me that I'd finally been able to speak the words about my son. So I heard something from one of my teachers talking about shame being like a vortex. Mm. Um, and so it's pulling you down. That That's what vortexes do. And the, the, the instant reaction I came up with was, I, th I thought about a conversation I had with a, a girl 30 odd. Yeah, 30 odd years ago, my first date with this girl. And she said, as we said goodbye, I feel like I'm falling off a cliff. Mm. And I, I, I still don't know whether I realized she meant I was falling in love. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I can't figure yeah. it out, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. 
But I think my instant reaction was kind of, that's a bad thing. Not falling in love, falling in love. Yes. You know, yes. I, I didn't get it. I didn't understand. I didn't understand it. Um, uh, but you know, I've I've definitely felt that vortex feeling. But it's almost as if. So I've got two kind of metaphors for 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 shame, um, and that have come to mind as I've been thinking today because I, I knew it would be a, a conversation. It would touch, it, it would be a big part of our conversation today because of what we talked about last time. So the first the first idea, and because you're a writer, you'll get this about the metaphor, is that the, the shame is a vortex and uh, it, it sucks a load of other stuff in. So it, it kind of, did it, did it start with, did it start with, um, did it start with getting pregnant? The the the, the shame was the stuff before that that was sh- there was the shame as well. Or did did the getting pregnant did that m- mark the 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 beginning of the sport the the vortex spinning? I think yes. Um, I I did have a, a pretty dis- dysfunctional mother, um, and there were times when I was growing up that I was ashamed of her and ashamed of things that went on. You know, there was a lot of secrets of her behavior and um, always trying to appear one way and realizing what was really going home on at home, you know, that type of thing. Um, I think it led me as a young woman to probably be looking for love in places I shouldn't have been. And I had a father I know loved me, but at the same time, he was a very quiet man and uh, was kind of in the background at that time in my life. And I think that led to me, you know, doing probably things I shouldn't have done. And then I end up pregnant, which is just back then. I don't think there was much you could do worse than that as a young woman in the 60s. Um and, and what happened, I believe what you said is so true. Other things start coming into that shame. Um, you never, or I, how it affected me, I should say, is I never felt like I was quite enough. And don't get me wrong, I had a good life. I've had, you know, many successes in my life. But I've, um, there was always that feeling of I'm not quite who I should be. And I think it just layered and layered and layered over the years. And it all stemmed from not being who I should have been. I should have not had let that happen. And then the shame of how it all played out. I, I for years fantasized about my son. They wanted me to change my name. In the unwed mother's home, they make you feel so secretive and so ashamed they wanted you to change your name never tell the girls your real name and even on all your records they would change a name and that's the only thing I stood up and said no I won't do and here's why I had this you know got to remember I'm a kid 
I had this fantasy that if I kept my name on, it would be on the birth certificate and my son would be able to find me. And even as young and naive as I was, something inside of me said, do not change your name. Keep your name. So as ashamed as I was, I still kept my name. So there was still that little part of me that was like, I shouldn't be ashamed of this. This is because here's what they would tell you. This will follow you. You know, people will be able to look up the records and see you were here. Um, and then when I did see the birth certificate that he had from his parents, it was mother unknown after all those years of me thinking my name would, would make him find me. So, I mean, the records were so sealed, as you know. And um, it, yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy how it all played out and how the shame just kind of builds and builds. And you don't even realize, you don't even realize that you are as ashamed as you are still silly because, you know, life goes on and you didn't do a horrible thing, you know? Yeah. Um, because I've been trying to figure out, I, I don't know whether I told you this when we spoke last, but I, I do mention it quite a lot, that um, business has caused me far more emotional pain than adoption, right? Mm -hmm. So the, the business stuff has been chronic for 30 years. Yeah. Um, whereas the adoption stuff has been more like acute. Yeah, it's been very painful, brief interludes. And I reckon I put it at about 40 seconds. Conscious mm -hmm. stuff, conscious stuff. And you know, like how, how much is subconscious? Who knows? You know, like you, you're into you're into um uh, you're you're into a strange world of 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 pontification that gets you nowhere, I don't think really. Um but I saw those two things as separate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, not good enough in business, not good enough. Um, you know, uh, my birth uh, birth mother, Patricia, didn't love me enough to keep me. You know, that's that was this 20 seconds of stuff that came out when mm -hmm. I was in a bad place. I was in a bad place for business, actually. So, and the context of the conversation was angry. So, it was anger, anger about not being heard. Um, I, in, in a in a conversation in a setting that was nothing to do with adoption. Right. I don't know if that makes any sense. It does. Um, so, I've been seeing these two things as separate, and and people tell me, oh well, it's the same thing. You know, it, you know the the business stuff, the insecurity from the business is down to the insecurity about adoption. I'm like, I haven't got a clue, really. I, and 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 does it matter? Do, do you know, like, does does understanding the source actually do any good or not? Um, and and yeah, I kind of because I'm it 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 um it intrigues me to a certain extent. But what intrigues me more is finding a a different way to see it to see how these two kind of um, sit together. So when I heard this, this mentor of mine talking about a vortex and sucking in everything else, it really made sense to me because, you know, like um, 
So um, I can see with me, I can see some shame around um, uh, peeing my pants in a in school when I was eight. Mm -hmm. I, I can see some shame with having buck teeth. I buck teeth that stood out. I can see some shame that was led on through some bullying. Right. So I can see the vortex starting to spin. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And and and, it, and then, but then really starting to spin faster with business, like in my twenties, my thirties, and my forties. So it feels like a it's a spinning thing. So what what we're looking at is rather than me me compartmentalizing my stuff i see it all, all, all together and then when when we're looking at the shame vortex I, 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 and then it, it's it's almost um it, it's almost as if and i i got this I got this um, analogy from somebody else, a guy called, uh, he didn't use the shame button, didn't do, didn't use shame word, but a guy called Richard Wilkins, um, who him and his partner, now his wife, have been my mentors in uh, very initially on the stuff I was facing like 14, 15 years ago. So if anybody wants to check out my source, check it. It's called, Minis called Richard Wilkins. It's a Ministry of Inspiration. So credit where credit's due. But here's the here's the metaphor, right? So I've, I'm looking at you on a screen. Behind that screen, there's loads loads of documents, right? There's loads of documents. And, and documents and there's JPEGs and there's video files and there's audio files. And I'm not the best, right? I keep in my desktop. Tidy, right? Mm -hmm. So, if I take all those different files, all those all those different memories that I've got, right? Um, so, it, like, it, it it doesn't take me much now to tell you that I'm ashamed of peeing my pants when I was eight, right? Mm -hmm. But but for years I kept that a secret. Um, so if I if I've got that little memory, and then I've got the the being called a bucktooth boy and like ratty and rodent, which I got a lot of at school. So got all got all those little different incidents, and you've got the incidents of the the incidents of the um, the, the the patrol leader guy on scout camp, the fourteen year old kid telling me that I was a wasteless. I, I you know when I messed up, I was a worthless piece of effing ass, right? And then I've put all the business stuff where I've hired the wrong people, made financial uh, errors, taken gambles, not taken gambles, all sorts of like all sorts of things. Right? I could, I could, because I've got a Mac. I could, I could control, click those, put those all together, and and put them into a, a bin, and the bin's called shame. Mm. Yes. And once I know that they're in the bin, it's not that I've forgotten about them, but I know I only know that I'm only dealing with one thing. I've not got to. So other if if it if it's not that if it's not a messy um, desktop, it's a game of whack a mole. 
right? So as soon as you get rid of the business trauma, you know, um, then then the adoption trauma pops up. And as soon as you get rid of that one, then the bullying pops up. And and and, and you're constantly fighting to try and I'm constantly fighting to try and whack each mole down, which is funny really, because my nickname is Moly, right? Okay, so because <laughs> my wife says we call each other mole, right? She when I get out of the shower, my my hair's wet at the back, she says I look like a mole. And, and 30 years ago, <laughs> stuff, right? But you can can you see the difference? Like we're only dealing with one thing, mm-hmm. dealing with the shame thing, or we're only dealing with one thing. With you know, we're not we're not having to deal with all those different things. And then we can we can bring the, um, yeah. So does that that make any sense? Yes, yes, it does. Um, it's funny you said. I was thinking about how my whole life. This morning, I was thinking about this when I woke up, because I knew we'd be talking. I've been able to compartmentalize all the sections of my life. But that little, you know, shame or the little thing on my shoulder or in my heart was always there, kind of the little dark, you know, secret. And I would be able to, you know, go to work, do what I needed to do, be who I needed to be and not think about it constantly. But then driving home would come over me. You know, it it was just, um, it never left. It never left. It made me very anxious. Um, I think a lot of anxiety I've had throughout my life has stemmed from that kind of weird Thing that won't go away with the shame. Um, and and I, I'll be honest with you right now, um, I still have moments of that. As much as I've come to terms with it, as much as my reunion was absolutely beautiful, as much as um, strength as I got from writing the book and um, the therapeutic, you know, wonderful benefits of being able to talk about adoption now learn about adoption I wouldn't even read a book about adoption by the way I avoided it I I was like a a ostrich with my head in the sand if there was a movie on the tv about adoption I would tell my husband I can't watch this um I I didn't um I didn't learn all the things that I've learned now and maybe it was self-protection I don't know but now I really, I really look forward to learning as much as I can, because I realize I wasn't, I wasn't wrong. It was, it was a horrible thing. It was a terrible thing. And, but I was wrong about thinking it was all my fault, you know. So, yeah. So I asked you if you were sh- uh, ashamed of being ashamed, and you said yes. So for me, what happened when you wrote down? The, the you know you went to the writing class and and you know you gave yourself permission to write down about your shame so instead of it, it, it was almost like stopping the it's almost like stopping the trauma spinning the vert the trauma vortex spinning it did yeah, um you stopped it the- you, you stopped it you had a look at it and you brought it out into the you brought it out of the darkness into the light of awareness and 
Um, have you heard me talking about the, the, the trauma ball? Have you heard me talking about this? Yes, yes. Do you remember what that is? No, explain again exactly. I've heard you say the term. Yeah. Um, oh, isn't it funny? Look what I just did. You know, I, I, I'm doing a, yeah, do you remember? And then you said, <laughs> I'm asking you to repeat it like I'm in class or something. Isn't that really rude? That's, no, that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I guess I'm going to put a self-defense there. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm interested. No, I'm not. I, I was, I was just being, I was just being, a, 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 what we call in England, a dickhead. Um, <laughs> so the trauma ball, it's like a snowball. The trauma ball is like a snowball or a shame ball, right? It's the same thing. Bigger and bigger as it rolls down. The yeah. So, yeah. Yes, it does. It gets bigger. It, no, we, 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 uh, it first, it, first it happens, right? Or, or somebody puts a seed, a seed in our head. Um, mm -hmm. I was talking to somebody about this yesterday and, and they were saying that um, they'd seen a therapist and um, the, the therapist had said, so she, she wasn't aware of any um, stuff. To, she was an adopting. Right? She wasn't aware of any stuff to do with it. And, and, and this, this uh, this the shrink um, said, "Well, of course, you know it, it started with your loss. You know, it like it hadn't been a thing, and then it becomes a thing, mm. and and then you got to deal with it, haven't you? It becomes a thing. So, so the the so the trauma ball or the shame ball it works like a snowball. So something happens, and we become aware. And, and this happened to me actually with the primal one stuff." So um, it, 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 we, we, when we become aware, when I became aware of the primal wood, right, I, I, I bent down. It's like, it was like I bent down on a snow field, a, a, a snow covered garden, yard as you would call them. Um, yards are concrete in the UK, right? When you say yard, I think you mean like a concrete yard, like a prison yard. You mean, right. you mean grass and could be anything, right? So, so a snow-filled garden, it doesn't really matter whether it's concrete underneath the snow or grass underneath the snow. I don't know why I went down that particular rabbit. <laughs> anyway, so you bend down, you pick up, you 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 you, you, you scoosh them, you, you scoosh some snow together, you 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 roll it between your hands and you make it into like a into like an egg-shaped size, right? And then you uh, and then and, uh, and and then you roll you roll that little ball along the ground and um and it you, you're doing it that the ego is doing this right mm -hmm, <laughs> body is, the body the hands that's doing it is the metaphor for the ego so the ego is getting more and more scared and more and more traumatized and the shame is is, is growing the vortex is spinning i'm using all my metaphors here and it's getting bigger and bigger uh, and you know, you said, oh well, it rolls and it rolls downhill, so it gets up more speed, right? So it gets up more speed, and and you feel like you're spinning out of control. That's what the vortex is doing. It, it's spinning you out of control, and then something happens, right? Um, so maybe it's been rolling downhill, and it it it, it hits it, it hits a plateau, and and it stops somehow. It stops. You look at what it is, right? You, you looked at what it is. And um, looking at this, this, this trauma ball, 
the 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 light of awareness goes on the trauma ball, and it it, it works like a uh, an industrial heater. And it uh, and the the trauma ball turns from snow to um, a puddle, and you keep the light of awareness um, on the puddle, and the puddle evaporates. And you realize there's nothing there. Oh, it's just water. <laughs> no, it's gone. It's it's vapor. It's, 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 it's air. Nothing. It's air. Oh. But it looked like a boulder. Yeah. And it felt like one. <laughs> it looked like a boulder. It felt like a boulder. <laughs> it smelled like a boulder. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it's um it's just crazy how many um writers and um not just writers people taking classes just to write for themselves you know or just just people not necessarily thinking about writing a book but people who are just in classes I've gone to for the last six years um it's amazing how you hear all the time how therapeutic it's been for them to write about not necessarily my story, but they all have, we all have stories. We all have stories, whether we're adopted or birth mother, or that's never even entered the picture in our family. There's always the stories that we are either ashamed of or uh, things that we felt, you know, we still feel grief over that's unhealed. And for me, it was very huge how much it helped. Um, I even, I mean, I tell everyone now they they need to keep a journal or write down, like even if it's just to write a list every day, because I do feel it's healthy. It's like, it's almost like a walking, it's a, like an exercise. You know, it's that same kind of, uh, I wrote it down. Now I can either sort it out, figure out what really did happen, and I think you learn so much about yourself. It's a very strong thing to do. So uh, when I'm walking, I, I'm i listening to stuff and uh, then I send myself an email. And when I get back home from walking, Rosie, I write the stuff mm, down. That's really book. good idea. Um, so the, the, the one that seems appropriate to share and I've, my top ones are in the front of the book. Oh. Um, so, I, uh, so here's, here's one that seems really I never use this word, opposite. <laughs> Feeling quite smug about using that. Uh, relevant, so, uh, I guess, to our conversation. Um, bad feelings are uh, our allies, not our enemies. Mm. So the the bad the bad feeling, the feeling of of shame, I have seen as an enemy. And 
and I guess you have too, and we've 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 shoved it down. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but it was a sign that our thinking was off. It wasn't a sign that that we were bad. So that's why you know. So we got. So I used to worry, and then I'd worry about worrying. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, then, and then I'd worried about worried about worrying, and, <laughs> and so it would grow. And and as a, a guy who I uh, mentor, I've learned a lot from a lot from in your part of the world on the west coast. A guy called Michael Neal um, says, "Then you become a moron. <laughs> more on your mind. More on your mind. More, more on. I like more it. On. <laughs> um, and and then um." The, another one I've got on here is, what if my mind is wrong? Mm, that's good. What if it is? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And another one, again, really relevant, and I'll, I'll show up after that. Um, am I fearing my feelings? Am I fearing my feelings? Because back to the, back to the trauma ball, the snowball. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's true the light That's of awareness good. It, it, uh, melts it so writing about it has the same effect or a similar effect to talking about it it brings it out of the darkness we're bringing our shame out of the darkness into the light the, the light of a, of, of a white pen you know, have a white on the the light of you know, like on a white piece of paper, mm-hmm. um, or the the white of the, the screen. You know, the Zoom screen. Yes, yes. Um, They're the same. Thing. It's it's uh it is the same. It's like for me, writing was the first step. The second step was to actually speak it out loud. Uh, okay. Yeah. And then to not be afraid of anyone's reaction because I know the truth and I finally believed in myself enough to know that this this was not something that was all my fault you know that was my whole thing in my life was what have I done what have I done what have I done and um, once I came to terms with that and I could talk about it 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 just changed me it it helped me in so many ways. I'm, I don't look any different. I don't, you know, act any different, but inside I'm different. Um, this has been a, a real, when I let myself, you know, think about it, stop and think about it. A lot has happened in my life since 2016. And I sometimes even wonder, would I be talking about it now if my son had not come into my life? Would I have reached this point? I don't think so. I think that that, you know, maybe I would have, I, you know, continue to write about it, but I think it was such such a hard, such a hard um, buried pain that to let it bubble up. Oh, and I wanted to tell you this, Simon, the first time I told my friend Jill, at the, you know, when we were sitting there talking and just popped out of me what had happened. First time I told her, we were walking back to the car and I started having these um, horrible pains 
almost like in my abdomen, like labor pains. It was the strangest thing out of nowhere. My stomach started like contracting. The muscles started contracting. Then I had a rash all over my mouth. And the rash, it was like for three weeks, stayed around my mouth. The rash was so intense, I went to three different dermatologists. Because it was, you know, here's a big old red rash all over my mouth. It was very strange. They couldn't figure out what it was. They kept giving me ointments and saying, oh, I don't know. Are you, is it, could it be stress? You know, and all these things. Turns out, I believe it was that I was letting all this toxic information that had just, you know, buried me. I was taking it and letting it out. And I didn't think about that till I was writing. And when I wrote about that day of finally telling her and all the things that happened as, you know, a result, I felt because nothing else changed in my life except I told her. And then I started all these uh, symptoms, these weird side effects started happening. And I even had to have um, the pains were so bad. And I'm not one to run to the doctor for everything. The pains got so bad that first week I went to the doctor. They ended up doing a sonogram because I was complaining so much about the pain and how it was like contractions. And I mean, is that crazy or what? It's like your body knows. Your body has memories that we don't even realize how what's going on in our head is affecting you know, our body saying, let this out, let this out. And, and the first time I went back to the unwed mother's home was 50 years after the fact, after my son found me. And the first time I went back there, my daughter-in-law, because they all, they live back there, you know, and they still live in Baton Rouge. And so we went down to New Orleans. I went with my daughter-in-law because I said, I really would like to see it. I never went back to that place. And I, I've been to New Orleans many times, never went back there. It's no longer an unwed mother's maternity home, of course, but it is um, still there, the building, and it still has a big plaque on the wall saying, um, you know, that it was a maternity home because it's a historic thing now. But um, the funny thing is, as we got out of the car and started walking up the street, I started having an anxiety attack that was so horrific. My heart was pounding. My throat was closing up. And my son and I had re reunited. But still, there was that walking up to that place. Immediately, I remembered the first, you know, the first time I saw it. And it hadn't changed that much. It, it was the neighborhood was the same. I mean, it was rundown neighborhood in New Orleans. It was just so strange and traumatic for my body to be walking up that sidewalk. Yeah. And knowing the last time I had walked away from there, I left my son. So have, have you seen my um have you seen my take on the the body keeps the score? No. My repost to the body keeps the score. So I'm going to change it. I'll take you through the take you through the idea because I'm quite I, I quite like it. Um, so the body keeps the score, and you know from an adoptee's perspective, you know it, it's uh, it's 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 trauma trauma one. You know yes, 
trauma one because trauma scores first yeah um uh, but then adoptees get together um uh, and teamwork makes the dream work and it's uh so it's the final score is adoptees one uh, sorry tr trauma one adoptees united 10 Right. Mm -hmm. um, so now I'm going to change it so I make it a bit more uh, 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 inclusive so it's trauma one um, birth mothers and adoptees united 10 I like that I like that if there's anything that I wanted my son to know and this was very important to me I wanted him to know how much I wanted him and never did I ever think that this was for the best. I know he had a good life with his adoptive parents, but the more we got to know each other over the years, he we were, you know, we we became brutally honest with each other and had some great discussions. Um, he had told me at first he never wanted to find me because he had no interest in finding me. Uh, he was had a good life. He didn't need me. And his wife pretty much, you know, pushed him to do the DNA thing and everything. And it was very hurtful, but I didn't say anything about it being hurtful. I held it inside. And um, I was just so glad we had, you know, we're talking. And uh, it was a miracle. It was, it was like probably the most miraculous thing that I'd ever had happen in my life. The most, the most huge, beautiful surprise I'd ever had happen in my life. And I was so, I mean, open arms. I, I I didn't care who he was, what he was. It didn't matter. I needed to know him. And it was just a beautiful, beautiful reunion. And at first I kind of walked on eggs because I didn't want to say, you know, I didn't want to upset him or rock the boat. Because with my other kids, I had all this history. With him, it wasn't history. It was like, fresh here we are last time I saw you you were seven pounds you know that kind of thing and uh we both felt quite close quickly and as time went on we were very honest with each other and he told me I told you I didn't want to find you the truth was I was afraid to find you I was afraid you really didn't want me and you would reject me and I mean, I do know that happens and I understand there's all kinds of different reasons and I I never judge anyone if that's, you know, if they can't handle that, I understand. It, it's, it is traumatic. <laughs> you know, the reunion's traumatic as well as, you know, the whole thing because all of a sudden your life changes. Yeah. You have all these different dynamics in your life now. You, you have this new person that, by the way, this is my child kind of thing. And it's it's like that causes ripple effects. And oh, by the way, boys, you have a half brother, <laughs> you know, and it's like all these things happen and the family, you know, all of a sudden you have his family is now my family and it couldn't have gone smoother, the original um, reunion. But what I was getting at is that once we were honest with each other, I realized even though he was supposed to be put with these wonderful people and they you know loved him he started telling me stories like he said he never felt a complete connection with my mother and 
his mother had passed away long, you know, like 18 years before he found me. So he'd been without a mother all those years, any kind of mother. And he said he never felt that close to her. He told me stories that, um, he, you know, it wasn't that he didn't love them. It's just there were things that would happen that made him feel like he didn't quite fit in, even though he had this, these people that adored him. Um, he didn't seem to have a good connection with his sister. She was adopted as well. Um, all these things about adoption came out that I probably would have been even more anxious and upset if I had known all of this stuff about the things that really were going on. And it's, you know, I think it's important that birth mothers, whether it's their adopted child or any adoptee, be able to talk freely about their feelings as well as the adoptees explain how they really felt. I think it's powerful what you're doing and bringing them together when people are willing to talk, we get an understanding of the other. You know, it's just my son had a lot of issues about being adopted that he didn't admit to at first. And the more we got to know each other and more comfortable with each other, he began to be talk about it. It was hard for me to hear, you know, because I always, I always thought, well, they have to be a good family because, you know, people who adopt really want the child. And I justify things in my mind and hope to God he was feeling loved. So once I heard some of his stories, it was very powerful to know that he'd always wondered about me. And here I'd been wondering about him. It was like we'd been severed from each other. And yet, he told you mm -hmm. that he didn't feel he fitted. He was he he was a person who um, he had a lot of um, depression. And my mother was like that. And from the day I met him as an adult, as a 50-year-old man, I, um, I saw my mom in him. And he had a lot of uh, issues, that same kind of issues she had. Yeah. And I'd look at him and I'd think, and, you know, my mother's passed away, you know, 11 years so she never saw him. I'm going to go back again, because I don't think it landed. He told you that the fact that he told you that he didn't feel he fitted in with his um, adoptive parents, uh, to me, is uh, a, a stunning testimony uh, to, to your relationship with him. He... Um... He and I, this is so crazy. You know, you've always heard of nature versus nurture. We liked the same books. We liked the same plays. We liked the same movies. We liked the same food. Um, he looked like me. His daughter, one of his daughters looks like a clone. I never would have even met her if I hadn't, you know, if we hadn't reunited. His children, I ended up having three more wonderful grandchildren, beautiful people. Um, he, 
he really um, he really had a lot of my family inside of him. And when I looked at him with my other sons, when he would come out and visit, his uh, he really it was just amazing. It was remarkable that the different little things I'd see similar, even though they weren't raised together, they were different because my other three boys, of course, had a different father and had been raised by me. But, um, and I think that does, you know, make a lot of differences in how we are as uh, people, how, you know, what we, our families are like and how we're raised and what we believe. But um, God, it was so obvious that he was my son. And it was one of the biggest surprises of my life because all those years, I mean, he was only two days old when I left there. And um, and I won't tell you the story. I did go back when he was three weeks old. And that's when I got the birth card. So I did get to hold him one last time. And um, when I held him, he, I looked at him and I saw his father. So all those years, I thought he looked like his father. I thought, oh yeah, he, um, he'll have blonde hair, blue eyes. Well, no, he looked just like my mother. <laughs> he looked like my side of the family. He used to say to me, do you think if we'd seen each other in an airport, we would have known each other? Uh, and I'd say, I don't know. <laughs> I don't really, I, I don't know. I mean, it was kind of crazy once we found each other, how much we were alike, but you know, seeing someone walk by, I, I don't know if you would think that. I, I'm, I'm so glad he got past his fear. He did. And, and you know, the end. Yeah. I mean, it's, and it's not the end, but the, the, no the fear end. of, 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 um, yeah. You, I fear he, that, that, that went, that went, that, that, that boulder. Um, came off him the boulder came off him the boulder came off me as far as our relationship was going it was beautiful and four and a half years into it because of other circumstances and some horrible things that were happening in his life and I think also um, and I'm going to be frank I think there were some um, there was some mental illness in some ways and um, he ended up taking his life. And at first, I was so devastated, of course, and crippled. I had just, I had just signed with a publisher, and I almost didn't publish the book. I was in such pain. But six or seven months into it, a few things happened. And my husband and I talked about it. I said, you know what? It's almost like I had some signs that I should do this, some different things that happened in my life. And so I, and he had loved the book. He had read the, the manuscripts because I wrote five drafts before I published. But anyway, he said, I mean, he didn't say, I said to myself, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go forward with it and publish. So I called my publisher and said, I do want to publish it. Yeah. And um, I think he would be proud of the fact that the story is there because he, you know, he loved when I told him the story and when he read my, my writing. 
I, I think the best thing in my life was the fact that I had him in my life for four and a half years, that I ended up with his children to love, um, that I, I knew he was a good man. I knew he had a, a beautiful life in, in many ways, but I knew he was a damaged person. And um, I think that that was a gift to get to know him now. I look at it totally different two years later after the fact. And I realized this, this is good because I think my book has actually helped people. They've told me it has, and it was meant to be. And it's kind of my, my story of him. So listeners check out this book, right? Um, so you're a writer. What do you, what would you like to call this episode of the podcast? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Um, whatever. I, I'm a writer, but I always have to think a lot. I'm not like a. I, you have I, to think about it. I do a lot of contemplating before I write. <laughs> well, the name of my book, as you know, is "You'll Forget This Ever Happened." <laughs> I always have a handy copy right here, and the reason it's "You'll Forget This Ever Happened" is because that's what us girls were told. We were told we would forget this. We never forget it. <laughs> it's insane. How can it's you forget? Insane. It's so, first of all, you never forget giving birth. I don't care what anyone says, even if you're out cold, you have a baby afterward. But then secondly, you never forget, you know, the traumatic experience of leaving the child. It's like, how could they have told us that? And how could we even have believed it? So that's why I named this book that. But you won't ever forget. And I don't care how hard you try, you know. So I don't know what you should call it. Um, well, I have a think about it. It'll be a while before it goes out. So I trust your, I trust whatever you say. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if anything comes to you, um, one last thing. I, I um I wrote down that you know you, your your process it went write it then speak it write it speak it and I'm wondering what the third one is. Hmm. Write it, speak it. Um, help heal others. I, I feel like others heal me all the time by hearing the stories of adoptees, by hearing other birth mothers' stories. There's something that just um, is so oh, heartwarming, painful, but just to be able to reach out to each other is huge in my life because up until my son and I found each other, I never delved into how many support groups there were. And I didn't even know how important it was for us to support each other. I was in my own little world too, wrapped up in my own sorrow. Once I began to share my words and accept the sorrow, you know, they give me their story. I give them my story. There's something about the give and take of that, that is so therapeutic and so good for us. 
to finally be able to speak our truth. Yeah. So, yeah, it's so, healing. So I had, um, as you were talking, I wrote, I wrote down, write it, speak it, and then I put accept it as the third one. Lovely. But then as you were saying what you just said then, I had write it, speak it, heal it, and share it. And when, I, believe, I believe that. And when I'm... And the it is, is the healing. I don't know. Anyway. Um, have you got anything you want to ask me? Oh, just I'm just thrilled with what you're doing. And I love that many a time you're interviewing people that I've met through this whole process as well, different authors. Um, and I do have a couple of friends who are adoptees and they did say I could give you their information. So I'm going to email that to you. Um, I also, I do a lot of beta, not, well, not beta reader reading, but I do reading and reviews for a lot of the authors that I'm getting to know. With when before their books come out, they'll send me a reader's copy, uh, advanced reader's copy. And um, one of them that just wrote a story was an adoptive mom. It was from her perspective. And that was interesting too. And it was very painful, this, the, the reading the story of different things that, you know, that she went through her insecurities yeah. about her son. Yeah. So there's this triad is so important. And I think what you're doing is, is wonderful, Simon. Thank you. Yeah. And I'm going to get to meet wonderful people like you. And I want to come, you know, my favorite place is England. Yeah. And I have my Yorkshire tea, tea right here. Yorkshire, <laughs> and, and I, um, I, I, my next trip, I swear to goodness, I'm going to come try to see you. My next Definitely. trip. Over. Do that. Do that. Definitely. To have a cup of tea together or together. lunch or something. Because people say, you know, the people that make Yorkshire tea say that it's actually made for Yorkshire water. Do, do you know what I mean? Oh. That's what they reckon, yeah. I think they're just... Uh, and we had some... Uh, we were up in Scotland, I don't know, last September. My wife is from Scotland. Uh, and they have Scottish tea, you know, especially brewed to be drunk with Yorkshire water. <laughs> You know, yes. Sorry, Scottish water. So, um, you know, it, I, it's all a bit of kidology, really, you know. Yeah. But well, uh, I, I first had it when I was over there years ago. And, um, and I started buying it here. And I the reason I loved it is because it was so delicious. And it's still delicious to me. But whenever I do go to England, I think the tea is much better there. And maybe it is the water. I don't know. <laughs> maybe, yeah. maybe it's because uh, I told you that the the, uh, the the factory where they make it is about ten miles away from me. I love that. That is so funny. You know, here I'm obsessed with it. I have to control myself though, because yeah. if, I, if I drink too much of it, then I'm like wired. <laughs> so I'm. You're not you know, get decaffeinated Yorkshire tea. No, I, I like the I like the little you know pump like in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I like that little caffeine zing in the morning, yeah. but um, I try to be, you know, I'm I'm old. You know, I try not to drink it in the afternoon so that I'll sleep all night. But yeah, I love tea. I love tea. I love crumpets. <laughs> I love crumpets, but they've got to be crispy, not soggy, right? Oh yeah, me too. I don't like soggy. Uh, soggy no, no. Crumpets, no. no. And on that note, um, 
we'll uh, thank you very much Laura and thank you to listeners we will um, speak to you very soon bye bye